Hey guys, welcome to this week's Roundup. Today we have an interview with a video game attorney, which I thought was really interesting, so hopefully that'll clear up some legal issues for some people that were still wondering. And I've got a ton of stuff to talk about, so let me just jump right into it and start with the news. First up is this week's Analog NT Mini update. Kevin is out of the core for the Odyssey 2, or Odyssey Squared as some people call it. And he's also put up a PS2 keyboard adapter, both the schematic and he'll have one for sale soon, that will allow you to use a full keyboard on the console as well. The main reason for this is for game consoles such as the ColecoVision or the Intellivision that have the number pads on them. Rather than try to program some crazy solution for each console, you could just get this or make, get or make this adapter um, and then just press the number button that corresponds on the PS2 keyboard and that way you could use a standard desk controller to control most of these. So I think that's a great idea um, and I think it's a fair thing too because you can pick up a PS2 keyboard for a few dollars. And he's also not, you know, he's giving you the schematic for free for the PS2 adapter if you'd like to make your own. So I thought all those are very cool updates and I'm looking forward to see what he has next. Next, the Flash Master Neo Geo Pocket ROM cart is now going, the desktop application for it is now going open source, which for most of us probably isn't a big deal, but if any of us are trying to make our own ROM carts, this would probably be a huge help. Uh, and also, they're putting it up on sale for 10% off. You just need to use a, a code that's uh, on their website, and the links to both of those things are in the description for anybody interested. Okay, up next I have a new GameCube plug-and-play HDMI solution. So this one is from Zelda X Pro, and this is just a prototype. So uh, I'm not doing a full review, I'm just going to do a short review in the roundup because it is a prototype. Um, but I definitely wanted to, to talk about it because when he posted on the forums about it, the forums kind of lit up and went, whoa, what are you doing, what are you doing? And uh, it's kind of fun that... Well, not fun, but it's good that we're policing our own community. Because there were a few times, in my opinion, that people were asking about things and we kind of just ignored it. And now they're all over eBay and they're not good. So this is not this does not seem to be one of those. But I'm glad that people were cautious about it at first because you just you never know what's going to end up uh, for sale these days. But just a very quick rundown and a basic review. Um, there are just PCBs on the outside which plug directly in. Uh, so you have the GameCube digital port and slides right in. And there's a lot more play than with the official GameCube uh, cables, but not a tremendous amount. Um, to the point that maybe just adding a little bit of rubber you know, uh, on the top and bottom would solve the problem. Um, or, or some kind of just, you know, some kind of felt solution um, just so that it, it has a more snug connection. Also, um, I don't know if you can see in the video, but it looks like the HDMI port is a little bit askew on the inside. Uh, and that's because this is still a prototype, and it is held in with glue. So, you know, glue Nazis, uh, I guess, have fun. But uh, this is not, is, uh, you might not be able to see in the video, but this is not like some of the other bad solutions we've seen. Just a small amount to hold it in. Of course, small bolts on the bottom with standoffs and... Uh, would make it not only make it look better, but it would be a better solution overall. And there is capped-on tape on the inside, which is probably just for um, isolation protection, which is fine. Tons of stuff come from the factory with that. Um, and there's no wires at all in here. Everything's pretty solid. The only concerns 
that people on the forums had. Um, you know, there was a lot of constructive criticism. Um, this could only ship uh, in one mode. You have to reprogram it if you want to change anything. So to add scan lines or stuff like that. Um, this is just a basic 480p output. You can't have any of those options. So maybe just by adding an IR receiver, you could have an on-screen menu. Uh, and also, um, there are pins uh, on the inside of this connector. Let me try to get the best angle so you can see it. But uh, there were concerns that these pins might get bent and cause a short. And while it, it's definitely a possibility, in the minimal testing that I've done, so I've just basically unplugged and plugged it in a bunch of times, um, it didn't seem like that was the case at all. Obviously, you know, there's always the small chance you could plug it in upside down. The two PCBs are different thicknesses, so, you know, it's hard to plug it in upside down. But once again, adding a bit more rubber on each side would probably, or a rubber or felt or some kind of buffer on it would probably be the right fix. So overall, I mean, my only my only real uh, complaint about this is price. But the, once again, they're prototypes, so uh, you know it's he had to pay a lot for them, I'm sure. But I think he was originally listing them at 140, and it's my personal opinion that the, if this is if this was cheap, which I don't even know if it's possible to make something like this cheap. But if it was, I really wouldn't mind some of the caveats like having the pins and. You know, having the glue hold it in and stuff like that. I mean, it, I don't think it's... I literally don't think it's possible to make a $50 version of this. But if it was, um, I would be totally okay with buying it knowing that it might not last as long as a newer... or a, a more robust solution. But still, at 140 it's still cheaper than the GameCube component cables. And if you need 480p output, um, you know, maybe this is the solution temporarily for right now. Uh, and I had tested it with the Game Boy interface at 240p. Uh, I tested it with 480i and 480p, and all of them worked. So overall, um, I'm glad I got to play with it. Uh, I still feel like it's a prototype nearing completion, but not completed. But I don't, I don't really think Zelda X Pro ever said it was any different, really. But uh, it's got a lot of potential. So. I wish him luck with the project, and uh, I'm going to send this back to him and hopefully get a more final revision in the coming months, and I'll do a full real review of that once I do. So uh, good luck to him, and yeah, cool product. Up next, I actually think this is old news. I just kind of stumbled upon this the other day. On bitbuilt.net, there are reprogrammable Game Boy dev carts, um, and they're very cheap. So it's not a ROM cart. You can only flash one game at a time. But a 1 meg cartridge is $20, a 2 meg is $32.50, and then a 2 meg with real-time clock is $45. So if you were looking for a very cheap way to just flash one game at a time, or more importantly, if you were looking for a way to test your own new homebrew ROM, this seems like the perfect way to do it. So I'll leave a link in the description, um, and like I said, I'm sorry if this is old news, but I'm just stumbling across it now, and I imagine it would be a big help to a bunch of us who are working on Game Boy projects. Next, the Wii U version of the game Bloodstained has been cancelled. Bloodstained is from the Castlevania team, and they're calling it like the spiritual successor to Castlevania, and it is now going to be available on the Switch, but not on the Wii U, which kind of makes sense, I guess, based on how Nintendo's treating the Wii U as well. But the good news is that there, if you ordered a Wii U version, you're allowed to uh, take the Switch version instead. 
And if not, you could get a PC, PS4, Xbox One, or Vita version instead. All you need to do is just uh, go and make a change. Um, and I, you have to, or you could get a refund as well. But if you want a refund, there's an April 20th deadline. So there's a link in the description to this exact post for anybody that has backed the Kickstarter of this. And uh, hopefully we'll get to see the finished version of this game soon. Next, there's another update to the Game Boy interface software. It adds a bunch of features including rumble support for the low latency version, which seems to be the one that most people are using with their FrameMeister. Um, also, sorry to Extrems, I think I missed this one last week, so I guess this news is about a week late, but if you're using the Game Boy interface software for your GameCube, definitely update to the latest version and check out the newest features. Next up, the Bliss Box has started a new funding campaign for its next generation of adapters and cables. So basically, the Bliss Box is a controller adapter that allows you to take controllers from most consoles and output them through USB to a PC or Raspberry Pi or certain other consoles that support USB input. You could still buy the kit right now for $120 that comes with the main adapter plus individual controller adapters as well. And that comes with all the most popular ones that you'd expect like SNES, Genesis, NES, and all that. The campaign is for individual cables that are coming after it, as well as future funding of the Bliss Box itself. So I'm still a little bit confused as to how this is going to work, but I believe he still has some inventory left, and when that runs out, that's what this funding campaign is for, um, for the future of the device. So it's a little confusing when you read through it. I'll leave links to everything in the description. Uh, and if you guys are interested, let me know, and I'll get Sean, the creator, back on to talk to him about it. Uh, or if maybe you guys will figure it out easier than I did, and uh, all the information's right there. So let me know if you need more info, and if not, links are in the description. Next, I have a few updates from GameTech. First, he's currently running a pre-order on the next batch of Ultra HDMI kits. So if you need one of those, they should still be available by the time this video airs, but definitely jump on it because those things tend to sell out pretty quickly. Also, the last batch of pre-orders um, arrived and they were shipping this week. So uh, if you haven't received yours yet, you should fairly quickly. Um, and that last batch took about two and a half months from the time you started it to the time they arrived. So anybody buying from this batch should probably be a little bit shorter than that but I would expect about two months, which seems pretty fair for you know a pre-order style product. Also, Marshall added an in-game reset feature, uh, but you have to add a wire from the kit to a spot on the N64 motherboard, but it's still a pretty cool addition to, uh, to have on there for anybody that needs in-game reset. So uh, once again, the link is in the description, so if you need an HDMI kit, definitely ultra HDMI kit for the N64, definitely pick one of these up right away. Nintendo just issued a statement about the Joy-Con controller problem for the Nintendo Switch. And basically, it was a manufacturing issue that they've cleared up. If you need your Joy-Cons repaired, you have to send it back to them, I think. But, uh, which kind of sucks, because that's the only way to control it. You can get a second set of Joy-Cons for $50 on Amazon. So I guess you could have a backup set while you wait. Or you can get, you know, maybe the, uh, the Pro Controller for it for, what, I think it's still $80. 
So it really stinks if you have a Joy-Con that's affected, but they did correct the issue. It won't happen in the future, supposedly, and there is a fix for it. So it's not the fix everybody hoped for, and me personally, even though I'm really not good at modding, I would still rather pop my Switch controller apart and, you know, do some kind of basic mod to it rather than send it back to Nintendo and wait for them to eventually get to it. So I guess it's up to you, but the link is in the description for more information. Arcade Forge now has the full production version of the Pi 2 SCART available on their website. I showed it off a couple weeks ago, and or maybe a few months ago now, and I had the prototype version that they were still working on, but now it's all finalized and it's been working great for me. I guess the only difference between my version and the final is they had a few jumper wires just uh, with taking care of some last minute design changes. But the official version looks identical to it, um, just a, you know, a perfectly clean board, and I've had great luck with it. So if you're looking for just you know, a quick and easy uh, SCART Raspberry Pi solution, this is definitely the one I recommend at the moment. And I think they're even offering it uh, to sell it with the Raspberry Pi 3 and everything else right on their website. So, um, you know, it's, as much as I'm not the biggest fan of emulation, as I keep saying, I, I just, there's no better way to do it for arcade machines right now, and I love using mine just to emulate all the old arcade games I love to play. So, uh, if you're interested, link to Arcade Forge is down below. The other day I saw that Artemio had retweeted a very cool article about the first video game Easter egg. And it was a good read, but, uh, you know, spoilers. Um, I guess at the end, uh, the person figured out that if the arcade machine was set up in a certain way, you could do a, a crazy button combination to get ten free plays when you insert your coin. And I just, I love weird little things like this. So I highly recommend it for anybody that likes uh, old game info or arcade games and stuff. And they actually talked to the original creator of that arcade machine in order to figure out if that Easter egg existed. So kind of a cool piece of history. There's a small update to the OSSC Wolf Edition project. The developer got the first prototype boards in and will be assembling them this week. And if there's no issues, he's going to start working on the production, production versions soon after that. And once again, the OSSC Wolf Edition is pretty much exactly like the original OSSC, with a few more hardware features tacked on, such as audio through the output from the, by default and uh, other audio inputs as well. So another cool project, and uh, I hope to get more solid news on when people can buy that one soon, because I think that's something that a lot of people might benefit from. There's an update to the Wonder Boy remake. Now Wonder Girl is going to be a playable character in the game, both in the original, uh, or both in the new version, uh, as well as the 8-bit version that's going to come with it. Which is pretty neat. So I never really got into those games too deeply, but I think I'm really going to dive into this one when it comes out on the Switch. And I can't wait to switch back and forth between 8-bit and, uh, and newer HD modes just to see what that feels like. Retro HQ has posted an update in regards to their Neo Geo Pocket Flash project. Uh, he got the final PCBs in for it, and it looks good. So he should be uh, doing pre-orders for that fairly soon. As soon as pre-orders are open, I'll definitely report about it, and uh, it's pretty neat. So it's, I'm sure it's going to work exactly like his Lynx ROM cart that worked perfect for me. And I love any time you can just dump a whole ROM set on an SD card and be done with it. That way, you know that you have all the games there ready to play, so if somebody says, Hey, have you ever tried out? You can just pick up your console and start playing. So I'm looking forward to getting one in for testing, and I'll let everybody know when pre-orders are open. 
Reddit had an AMA with Mark Turmel, who was a developer for Midway back in the 90s and worked on games such as NBA Jam. And I thought it was really awesome. Uh, he gave a bunch of little insight kind of behind what happened and some fun little things like NBA Jam was made and tested in Chicago and Michael Jordan was actually a character in all those early games, but he had to be pulled weeks before the game was shipped because he, uh, I guess his Nike contact or, or contract must have conflicted with it. Um, also, after the game became a hit, uh, Gary Payton and Ken Griffey reached out and wanted to get a custom game with themselves added. Uh, and he said Michael Jordan actually wanted one as well, so they made special EPROMs and gave them to the, uh, gave those cartridges to those people. And he actually said he would try to find those to see if maybe he could dump the ROMs for us. I wouldn't hold my breath for that, but holy crap, that would be really awesome if he did that. Uh, and he also told a pretty fun story about how when The Undertaker came in, um, he refused to do any work until somebody brought him whiskey. And then as soon as, you know, as soon as somebody brought him a drink, they said he actually worked really hard and, and helped a lot on the wrestling game. And how when Aerosmith came in, they requested porn mags before they'd work. <laughs> so, weird, but fun, a fun AMA to read, and uh, it seems like a cool guy. So I hope to hear more from him in some of the games he's been working on lately. Somebody on the SMS Power Forum had an interesting project that they'd been working on. They saw that the sprite for Sonic in the Sonic the Hedgehog Game Gear game was much different than the one in the Master System game, which to me was strange too because I always thought those were the exact same game, uh, but apparently not. Uh, apparently the Game Gear version actually had a bunch more detail in the backgrounds, but an ugly sprite for Sonic himself. So the developer went in and actually recreated the sprites for the game using the SMS versions as a basis for it. And it looks pretty neat. So I'm showing pictures up here for anybody listening, and I'll have a link in the description. Um, he also posted a YouTube video that showed how he did it, and uh, it's English subtitles because I believe it's in Spanish. So uh, another very cool project that I would have never expected, and I always love weird little things like this. So I'm interested in seeing... Um, there was just recently uh, the Master Game Gear to Master System hack of the Game Gear version of Sonic, so hopefully they'll implement this hack into that, and I'll be able to play the Game Gear version in full screen on a TV. It's kind of weird, because like I said, I always thought they were the same, but I guess not. I guess still, all these years later, we're learning about little intricacies and differences between them. It looks like Nintendo is shutting down their DSiWare shop for good this Friday. This is something that they've given almost a year's notice for, and it's something everybody expected, but Friday is now officially the day. So I don't even think you were able to uh, to actually purchase more credits for it as of months ago now. But I guess if you wanted to purchase any last-minute DSiWare stuff and you still have credits, this is your last chance. Also, I think, um, you know, a lot of this stuff gets lost over time. So as we've spoken about a lot over the years, a lot of the ways to actually save this software is through piracy. And I believe there's only one actual DS uh, memory stick that will play these DSiWare games. But I left a link in the description to the GBA temp forum and hopefully all the information anybody would need is there. Next, it looks like somebody posted 3D print files for a mini Neo Geo desktop cabinet that actually fits the Nintendo Switch right in it. And it's kind of neat. It's one of those things where, you know, if you have access to a 3D printer, it just looks really awesome. Um, I think uh, you can get a sticker kit for it, too, and everything, so you could actually dress your Switch up like a mini Neo Geo cabinet. So, you know, just it's kind of more of a toy than anything else, but I thought it was neat and definitely worth sharing.
Next, there's a new Sega Genesis beat-em-up game that's just released called Paprium. The team behind it, Watermelon Games, has been working on it for about four years, and they claim it's an 80 meg game with 24 sound channels, which all of those things are, are pretty pretty extreme for the Genesis. I mean, I don't think anything that was an official game ever even came close. It's very expensive, though. Uh, so the, the cheapest version is $70, and that's compatible with all all regions, and it comes with a box and a, an instruction manual. The next version is 90, and that could be localized, so you could have the Japanese, U.S., or European version with the box art that kind of matches the theme of each region. And then there's a limited edition for 150 that I believe comes with an arcade stick as well, which actually looks pretty cool. So overall, I mean, you know, it, a lot of hype for this game. You know, even the they made a, a very 90s Sega Genesis-like commercial to go along with it. Uh, I'm not pre-ordering one yet. I kind of want to see what everybody else has to say about it. Next, I tested the latest version of the SCART to component adapter from Fusion. Um, I'd seen him on eBay, and I saw him post on the forums. And I really wanted to put this thing through its paces because I've seen so much equipment go up that, uh, you know maybe couldn't perform as good as we'd hoped, but this thing so far has been really great. I, uh, with the latest version, I haven't run into any issues at all. Um, it seems to work perfect, and in the screen caps I did, it really looks like, uh, you know, directly into the capture card. You can see that RGB and the component output of this are extremely similar. So, I mean, obviously, anytime you have the device in an analog chain, every device you add is going to just reduce the signal quality by just a hair. Um, but I would say that on uh, consumer-grade CRTs, you will never notice the difference between this and um, RGB directly, uh, and probably not even on flat-screen TVs as well. So if anybody was looking for a generic SCART to component output, when I say generic, I mean compatible with all SCART, not not uh, tweaked for each individual system. This seems to be the best choice available now because the CSY converters, um, the original ones, are much more expensive than this. I think these sell for 80, and the CSYs I usually see for 120, and they're really hard to find. But more importantly, those CSY clones are awful. I mean, you know, for a while that was the only option that many people had, but just the fact that you have an analog video device that needs tweaking every time you buy it, that's there's something wrong with that. Analog video levels are not like audio. There is no preference. It's right and wrong. So the fact that every single one of those things you have to open up and tweak the potentiometer on it, I don't like that at all. Whereas this is not the case. You just plug and go. So there are other RGBS to component converters out there, but they all use a D-sub adapter. So you'd have to build your own converter or something else. Whereas this one's just everything you go right here, 80 bucks. Um, and you know, maybe if you start selling a ton of them, you could get the price down. But uh, so if anybody was looking for one of these things, uh, at the moment, this is definitely the one I would recommend. Um, I sent it along to a few other people to test. Um, I actually had a couple of them, so I sent the, the latest revision along to a few other people to really put it through its paces, put it under an oscilloscope, and I'll report back again. But as of now, it just it seems like a good solution, and certainly way better than those cheap, junky clone devices. So good job to Fusion for doing this. And lastly, I recently posted a video showing off the BKM68X board for the A-Series BVMs. 
So basically, if you don't own an A-series BVM, it's probably not worth watching. But if you do, I just kind of go through some of the issues that it has and how to get it working. But basically, I'll try to make this as short as possible. So the, uh, the D-series BVMs support, D as in David, support all resolutions, 240p, 480i, 480p, 720p, 1080i which is why they're widely sought after, because you could pretty much get any signal into that. Also, the input boards and back, because unlike PVMs, BVMs require their own slotted input card that, it, that you actually get the signals into it. They're fairly cheap. You can generally get good quality ones from Pat for you know, under $150 that have cap replacements already done, and they're, you know, they work well. The problem with the A is an Apple A-series BVMs, they only made a very small amount of component slash RGB input cards. So while, while the monitors themselves are kind of sought after because they're newer, which means the chances of you getting a newer CRT are better, you could only use it with SDI component or, or I mean SDI composite or S-video um, cheaply. The, the card that you need, the input card that has RGB inputs on it, is that BKM-68X, and those go for an insane amount of money, at least $1,000, more than the monitor itself, generally. So that's why I wanted to do a video about it, and that's why it's important. Um, so, uh, if, like I said, if you don't own an A-Series BVM or don't care, just don't bother to watch the video. But if you do own an A-Series, I would definitely check it out, because it kind of shows tips and tweaks and things you could do to make the signals more compatible. Okay, on to the Q&A stuff. First up, last week when I tweeted about the Roundup, um, I guess somehow the Twitter link got messed up, which happens sometimes. It, you know, the same copy and paste, the YouTube link works through Facebook, but not Twitter. So somebody let me know and I just deleted and retweeted it. But the person who let me know uh, just tweeted back, link is dead. And badass consoles tweeted back with this picture. <laughs> and I know I'm a nerd. I know I'm just a cheesy nerd, but I thought it was the funniest thing on the planet. Because anybody who knows the whole chicken bit from A Link to the Past, like, so I'm sure a bunch of you are watching this going, what the hell's wrong with you? But there's at least a few of you laughing. I know Scott's one of them. So <laughs> I thought you guys might enjoy that. Last week when I did the interview with Rob, we started out by uh, doing a shot and cheersing each other. And I tried to do it in a bunch of different languages. A few people in the comments had actually told me that kanpai is cheers in Japanese. So I'd heard it before, but I had forgotten it. So now I will definitely add that one to my repertoire. So, kanpai. Next, Eric Hurley asked, When using a PAL GameCube and an RGB SCART cable, what should the sync be? The one retro gaming cable sells seems to be sync on composite video. And there is also a C-Sync option, but it just uses a sync stripper and the SCART head. I've got a G-SCART with a sync stripper built in, so I assume it would be pointless to run two strippers in series. So, um, a few different things to answer about that. So, first of all, PAL GameCubes don't output C-Sync or S-Video. Your only choice at all is composite video. Um, after that... If you already have a G-SCART switch, um, there's no point really in getting the sync stripper in the SCART head because it's doing the exact same thing. The only thing that might be a help and uh, might be a small difference is if you were to, uh, if Rob somehow could put the sync stripper in the console side 
or if you uh, don't mind disabling composite video, you might be able to open up the GameCube, cut the composite video trace, and put a sync stripper there. And the purpose of that would be so composite video doesn't run alongside the different color wires down the cable, which is actually what causes all of that interference. So that's a bit of an extreme solution. Um, maybe Rob will get the, the cables with the sync stripper in the console end. It'd be really hard to pull off, but um, hopefully you'll be able to do that at some point. Uh, but to answer your question directly, if you're using a GameCube right now and you need to buy a, a cable right now and you have a G-SCART, just buy this, uh, the composite video CVBS version and it'll do everything that you need it to do. Next, Little Freak 3000 asked, In the interview with Rob, you talked about a perfect RGB connector to be universal for all non-standard RGB consoles. Why not the Genesis 2 style Mini Did 9? So, um, and then he actually went into a, a pretty good description about why he thinks that's a good one. Uh, I spoke to Rob about this after the interview was over, and Rob agreed as well that that's a good choice. My only problem with that, and the only reason I think it's a bad choice, is what would stop somebody from just plugging in a Genesis uh, cable into it, which has components on the console end and components in the SCART head. And as much as you tell somebody, oh, well, it's a different cable, it's a different cable, at the end of the day, it's, you know, you, if it plugs into the same port, then it's you know, it's going to cause issues at some point. And, you know, the other side of that is, well, then you could just design it so that, you know, uh, you don't have the 75-ohm resistors on your custom board, you could have it in that cable. That's just a nightmare of issues as well. So, um, in a perfect world... Uh, if, Genesis, if Sega had made their Genesis consoles with the components on the board itself, uh, then this would be a non-issue, and it would by far be the perfect way to do it. But unfortunately, the more I look into this, the more I realize that I don't think there is going to be just one round connector that goes through all of the, the prerequisites of it's going to have to be around for a long time, it's going to be cheap and mass-produced, um, you know, it's going to be something where you could get shielded cables for it, and, you know, the only thing close enough to this that I found is VGA style. But then there's always the issue with, you know, as soon as somebody sees that connector, they're going to try to plug it into a VGA port. So it's still up in the air at what the be at, for what the best connector might be. But, uh, you know, any suggestions, obviously, we're open to hearing all of them. And hopefully we eventually could come up with some retro gaming standard connector. These last few Q&As are in regards to the video I did on that BKM68X board. First, Plasmonkey said, regarding the statement for 480p not being compatible with HD, SDI, or standard SDI, you're correct, but supposedly there was a standard that did support it called EDSDI, and uh, he doesn't think any BVM cards actually support EDSDI. So if anybody watching this happens to know, um, if there's any way to get 480p into some kind of SDI or HD-SDI, please let me know, because at the moment, I don't think there's any way at all. I think the only options are 720p and 480i. And lastly, a few more people chimed in about the 68X um, and said, you know, so in short, stay away, it's not worth it, or... Um, you know, it's too much time, trouble, and money for subpar results. I think they were actually misunderstanding the whole issue. So um, BVMs at all are really, really hard to come by. And when you do, they're very often beat up. They need a, you know, full cap replacement, calibration. So when you stumble across an A-series for a decent price, 
they're much newer. The one that I was testing in that video was from 2008, which is less than 10 years old. And it looked remarkable. I mean, it was one of the best CRTs I've ever seen in my life, simply because of how new it was. I believe that had 800 hours on the CRT tube itself. So, no, it's not a waste of time and money at all, simply for the fact that, you know, they're, uh, they're just newer, which means you could potentially get one that's in much better condition. The issues, though, um, buying a 68X input card and, uh, and dealing with some of the, you know, some of the quirks of it. So you need to run an Extron device in between in order to kind of to make all the signals compatible. You know, if you if the 68X card was cheap, or let's even say it was $500, I would still say it's worth it just because you're getting something that's newer and potentially, you know, a lot less use on it. And, you know, to deal with little quirks is fine. But the other thing is, you know, there's still other ways around this. And the most extreme way, which is actually a good use, is if you find a D-series with a really beat-up tube that barely works, but the cards themselves seem fine, or even if they don't, even if you just find a, a beat-up D-series with a bad tube, you could pull that tube out, and then you could recap the whole D-series and put in the tube from your A-series. And now you basically have, because the tubes are completely swappable. So now you have a D-series BVM that, you know, with all your input cards restored and everything's in good condition. Um, and, you know, that that in itself, I mean, buying a beat-up D-series for three or $400 and then buying a great A-series with no input cards at all for five or $600, I mean, you end up with, you know, you might have to have a couple of hundred bucks to have the tube swapped and to maybe trade out the cards for ones that have had cap replacements. But at the end of the day, I mean, it's still top dollar, but you're getting a fully capped uh, monitor that supports all resolutions. And then, you know, of course, there's all the other things. If we could somehow find a way to get 240p through SDI, that would certainly be a, a perfect solution for anybody that wants to do old gaming. Or if somebody figures out um, a replacement card for the 68X, if somebody wants to do a homebrew method of that, who knows? But the only thing that I wouldn't suggest is a few people asked, you know, what happens, uh, could you do like an RGB mod and go through the jungle chip like you would uh, a consumer grade CRT? And my only personal opinion on that is if you're going to go through that much trouble, you might as well just swap the tubes with a different monitor because, I mean, that that's not easy to do. You have to take the whole thing apart anyway. So I just, uh, I definitely wanted to clear up the misconceptions. You know, if you're just, if you're a retro gamer and you want to go out and buy a BVM and start playing, don't, don't get the A-series. Stay away because it's a lot of effort. But if you happen to stumble across one cheap, if it's your only option, if whatever reason one ends up in your lap, like, it's not, don't throw it out. It's not useless. There's different things we could try to do to it um, and different ways we could, you know, try to work with it. And not, not to mention, if your favorite console is like PS2 or GameCube and the majority of the games are 480i, then just getting a SDI adapter might be a perfectly good solution. So it really depends on the situation, but it's not a waste of time and money, and they're not junk monitors. You just need to know what you're getting into when you buy an A-series monitor versus the rest of them. So I hope I didn't ramble too long on that. I just wanted to make sure to clear up all the misconceptions about that one. Okay, up next I have an interview with Ryan Morrison, the video game attorney. I had a lot of fun talking to him, and I'm really glad he took the time to do this because, you know, we all know lawyers' time is very valuable and they get paid a lot, so to take 
time out of his day to give free advice to everybody. It was a really nice and generous thing for him to do. And he seemed like just an honestly a cool guy and a fun person to talk to. So I really enjoyed the hell out of the interview. I hope all of you guys do too. And I hope we could clear up some misconceptions maybe that people had with uh, you know different legal things in the video game community. But as always, any comments or criticism, please post down below. I love hearing from everybody. Um, and I'll definitely leave a link to the video game attorney's uh, Reddit post which had a lot of amazing uh, information in it as well, as well as links to his firm uh, and you know him how to contact him directly. So big thanks to Ryan, and I'll see you guys next week. Hey guys, I am here with Ryan, the video game attorney. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm really excited to have you on for a million reasons to share your knowledge with the community and. Also, because it's uh, it's very rare that I get to talk to a lawyer preemptively. Usually, when I do, it's talking to me about getting myself out of trouble I've already gotten into. So that's true with everyone in your industry. Usually, you guys call us after something's on fire when it's a lot harder to deal with and a lot more expensive to deal with. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. So, um, I think most people watching probably know who you are, but just for the people that don't, would you want to just give a quick background and uh, just kind of how you ended up where you're at? Sure. So my name is Ryan Morrison. I uh, run a law firm. <clears throat> sorry, getting over a cold from GDC and PAX. Uh, run a law firm in New York with uh, my partner, Michael Lee. We work primarily in video games, but we do digital entertainment. So it's Twitch, YouTube, it's esports. Uh, but we certainly started in video games. And a lot of what we still do is game dev related. Uh, we help everybody kind of go from hobbyist to professional. We help you with your trademarks, your contracts. Make sure everything you're doing is the, the right way so you don't have to call us when there's a problem later on. And uh, that's where we kind of made our home in the industry. Gotcha. So when you were a kid, were you, you know, were, were you into video games and then got into law? Or did you always kind of, you know, did you watch Law and & Order and want to be a lawyer but then also loved video games? Like, what, <laughs> what made the connection? Uh, yeah, actually, it, we get asked that a lot. And it's funny because I didn't know video game law was the thing when I started. Uh, it. it kind of wasn't a thing when we started. There were a couple people working in it, Tom Bascalia for one, Jim Charney for another, Gregory Boyd, but there was a handful of people kind of doing the entire industry. And I went to law school for criminal law of all things and very quickly realized that's not what I wanted to do. Litigation's not like they make it look on uh, TV. No, it is not. <laughs> uh, and to this day, I have not been in a courtroom as an attorney. It's just not the kind of law I do. We do a lot of transactional uh, my partner is the litigator. I do the transactional side usually. And while we both dabble in, in the other, just the this industry as a whole doesn't see a courtroom much. It's, it's uh, nice that most of what we can do gets solved outside of it, uh, whether that is through minor or different courtrooms like the USPTO with trademarks or, or whatever it might be. But no, yeah. So I grew up quite a nerd, though. I uh, grew up playing, you know, I mean, literally name it. I, I spent every hour of my waking life playing games as a kid besides hockey practice i would come right home and play everquest and then i would uh got addicted to final fantasy seven through <clears throat> fill in the blank and uh yeah you name it i played it <laughs> that's awesome that's awesome so um the one question that i get more than anything else um and i would love to hear your uh you know what you have to say about this is are roms illegal and we're <laughs> most specifically talking about uh, ones from the the consoles of the '90s, not a console produced today. I think it's pretty freaking obvious that if you download a 3DS ROM, that something that's still being sold, that there's no gray area. You're stealing. So, well, there's no gray area for either. 
they're both yeah. absolutely entirely the same. They're they're not legal in any capacity. You're not allowed to distribute someone else's IP. Uh, I've heard every theory in the book as to why it's legal. It's it's not. Uh, do I agree with it? It doesn't matter. People always get mad at me for my answers. My answers are the law, not necessarily what I agree with. So mm -hmm. taking my personal opinions aside, no, it's not legal to distribute or sell ROMs, uh, even if the game is abandoned or whatever else. If you want to have your own personal backup for some ROMs, that gets a little more legal depending on if you own the game in the first place, how you got that ROM, et cetera, et cetera. But certainly the distribution of ROMs is, is not legal in any capacity. Gotcha. So that's exactly what I've always kind of thought on it. The um, the only the only thing that I've always kind of said is, of course, you know, Frank Cifaldi just did that big talk about how the pirates are actually the ones that seem to have been preserving video game history. And while he still very much gets a lot of slack for it, a lot of these early 80s and early 90s games would have completely disappeared, especially the unfinished stuff that never went out. Um, but... You know, the, the analogy a lawyer gave me a long time ago when I was talking to, uh, we were doing home theater distribution stuff, is, you know, technically, if I buy a Blu-ray and I rip it to my hard drive and I watch it, that, at least at that time in life, that, they said, was illegal. They said, you're not supposed to do that. But um, they, they were also told that if I did that personally, no one's going to come after me for it. Not only because sure. they wouldn't know, because it's a waste of their time. However, right. as soon as I take that copy and sell it, upload it online, and do something where I'm now just giving away something, that's when, um, yeah, red flags definitely come up, usually starting with cease and desist anywhere up to fines immediately. I, 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 and we see cease and desist a lot less frequently now. Now normally they come for your house right away because uh, <laughs> they're, they're kind of sick of it. They realized we can send cease and desist forever, but everyone in the industry then just says, Oh, we'll just do this till we get a cease and desist. So now they don't owe you a cease and desist. That's that's a legal courtesy. That's not a legal necessity. And uh, we've had plenty of clients who are now quite literally homeless or lost their families or their entire uh, livelihoods because they were uploading something like ROMs. Uh, that's that's you know it's it's not a lighthearted thing anymore. It's it's potentially very life ruining. And that example example you just said is exactly right. <clears throat> uh, more so even nowadays, but just replace the word Blu-ray with video games, and it's the same thing. So I know, obviously, you're not allowed to talk about your clients, but would you be able to give a general example of what happened that that caused somebody to get hit so hard that they lost their house? Sure. So, the, I mean, one example that is a little public, I can't say who it is, although they've talked about it publicly quite a few times on Reddit. Uh, basically, they were making... Uh, so, so to, it, And this is a piracy example. There's worse examples for just trademarking copyright infringement or whatever you might want to get into. But uh, what he was doing was quite literally running a ROM website and the website uh, was making a ton of money off advertising and things like that. And it became his full time job. He was running a, a ROM website. Uh, he was also doing some other things on there. But what actually destroyed him was the ROMs. It wasn't the movies he was distributing or anything like that. I think he even had music on there. He could have got hit a million different ways. But the game companies are the ones that came after him, two in particular. And uh, they basically said, you can sign this, <clears throat> you can sign, you can pay us X amount of dollars, a life ruining amount, or you can pay us a tenth of that and sign this summary judgment saying, a consent judgment saying that you are wrong, you're admitting you're wrong, and it, this is illegal. Now, that consent judgment won't hold up as precedent in an actual courtroom, but you guys don't go to court. You guys, don't have the hundred grand to defend yourself usually. Mm -hmm. So instead they take that consent judgment and they put it in all their future cease and desist. And those cease and desist again now come with a 
take down this website, show us your bank account, show us every dollar you've made, and give us $200,000, whatever it might be. And that all together is not something that anyone running a ROM website is going to want to deal with. Right. So that's not even something I considered before because um, when I, you know, it, the times that I've distributed ROMs, there have been things that have out of print. It's it's to collectors, the people that know own the game anyway. And I don't, I don't my website doesn't have ROMs on it. Period. Right. So there's I don't even have to worry about this. But I never looked at it that you know people were making a living off of that because I very often defend people who save these ROMs and especially the ones that do it for archival purposes, but they don't host them on a website. It's kind of privately like, yeah, no one's know. doing it for archival purposes. That also is running ads on the website and, and making a living off it. Right. That, that's where I don't feel bad for them anymore. Uh, so listen, this job's changed me for sure. Three mm-hmm. years ago when I started video game attorney on Reddit and, and everything with that, uh, I was much more an advocate for, I get why you guys are doing this. Let's help you now working in this industry and seeing the blood, sweat, and tears that goes into making these games, uh, everyone is for open source and everyone is anti-IP <laughs> until it's their own IP being stolen. Right. Uh, I've yet to meet someone who had their game being stolen and said, that's awesome, cool, I'm glad people are playing it. Uh, I've seen those headlines from, I think, Hotline Miami was most recent that said, you know, download us for illegally in Australia after they banned us. But I've not seen it as not a marketing tool. So, yeah, Hotline Miami makes a bunch of headlines by saying that. That's awesome. And they're good guys. I mean, I'm not insulting them. But people want to protect their IP. Mm-hmm. I have a Star Wars poster behind me. The prequels were terrible. That doesn't mean I get to go make better prequels. I don't own Star Wars. I don't get to do that. <laughs> and I shouldn't. Uh, but, you, I mean, you name it. We've heard it in terms of the defenses. Oh, well, we don't charge for these ROMs. They're free. It doesn't matter. Oh, well, we're doing a fan game version. It's a remake of this old ROM, but it's not blah, blah. It doesn't matter. It's just, you know, it, it's so outrageous, the the bad law that gets passed around Reddit and other communities. And then people, it, it's, it's, uh, it's like what Trump does. He makes up something. People repeat it. And then he cites those other people repeating his own nonsense as if it's fact. Yeah. That's what the online community does with, with ROMs and things like that. They'll say, oh, well, as long as you... Uh, my favorite is is uh, it's more for mods, I guess. But it's you need the base game to load this, so I'm allowed to do whatever I want to it. No, that's not how this works. It so doesn't matter. So that's actually if you own something that um, I have always gotten conflicting information about, and I, I honestly don't know. So if like some of my favorite things on the internet are, are Super Metroid and Zelda hacks that fans have done, and that's exactly what they've said. Here's the IPS patch for it. Um, it has no Nintendo IP in this patch at all. Is that still illegal to distribute? Yeah, 100%. Go look at Project M's website. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were a mod for Smash Brothers, and it's 100% illegal. You're not allowed to do that. Hmm. You will not find a lawyer who disagrees with that. Is it morally right? Maybe not. I mean, I'm not arguing the philosophy of it or the policy behind it. I'm telling you, though, you are not allowed to do that. That is is, uh, every single EULA that exists says you are not allowed to do that. You know, I hope that I hope that in the future we're able to find something that's kind of like music, right? If uh, if I put an album out and somebody likes one of my songs but says I want to do it all with ukuleles and accordions or something, and they do it, that's not can, legal either. Um, well, they can one hundred percent legally do that by going through the correct channels. Sure. Oh, so it, yes. It, why don't you set it up? <laughs> I mean, seriously, I, the guys who set it up for music are not govern. They're not government bodies. It just would take a true archivist to say. I do want this to work. So, so what? And and to elaborate, what happens in music? The proper channels are basically: I can go cover any song I want as long as I pay the uh, correct body that will basically reimburse the artist for that. 
Right. Uh, so if games do that, it would be incredible. I agree with you. I would love to see. I mean, my favorite games are from the NES or Super Nintendo or whatever they might be. I would love to see them remade uh, or, or made better or or HD remakes or whatever. Mm-hmm. And we're not gonna because a lot of the programmers or developers are so broken because this industry, the triple A side of this industry is where the indie side is now, mm-hmm. meaning there were no good contracts. No one knew who owned what. So you go pick a game on Sega and the studio that was working with the developer, working with the publisher, working with a musician, no one can figure out who actually owns that IP, mm-hmm. but they'll all sue you if you try to remake it yourself. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's a mess that we'll never see a lot of our favorite games remade, and it's just a sad truth. Hmm. You know, there's different levels of that, too, because, you know, and this is strictly opinion, obviously, but if somebody wants to do, like, a Super Mario World hack for the, you know, the SNES version of it, and they just want to kind of give it away, and it's a very small percentage of gamers, if you really think about it, that's going to be playing it. You know, it, it's that's that's one path that you'd have to fight for. But then, if somebody said, "I want to redo Super Mario World and put it on an iPhone," I would. I mean, in my personal opinion, for Nintendo to say, "No, of course not. That's not what we go for." You know, that's I actually would agree with that totally. But I think the case of another Metroid Two remake. I'm not sure if you heard about that one, but a guy pretty much did Metroid 2 from scratch, and it's amazing. I mean, it's better than But any... it's illegal. Yeah, <laughs> and he did get a takedown notice from Nintendo, and he didn't talk much about it, but from what Well, he said... can't, because those takedown notices... He probably shouldn't have even said what he said, to be honest. Knowing Nintendo's takedowns, he probably breached the settlement he made with them. <laughs> I yeah. don't represent him, I don't know that, but... He said I, very little, so, you know, other, yeah. um, and I, I kind of always wondered what happened. Was it just Nintendo saying, you know, look, dude, no, no way. You got to, you know, take this down and we'll leave you alone. Or was there more behind the scenes that he's not even allowed to talk about? Well, I mean, just pure speculation because I don't represent him, but I would say the way this normally works and not Nintendo. Nintendo gets a bad rap for some reason as the most litigious company. They're not. I mean, Sega gets hailed as a savior of everything. Go try to make a Sega remake, a Sonic remake for the iPhone and see what happens. Mm. Uh, I, I don't understand where the internet kind of made those two parties, uh, one evil, one good. It's just completely inaccurate. Sega sends out just as many cease and desist. Uh, but that said, let's take Metroid for, for a second, or let's not, let's remove Metroid and say Game X. The mm. way those settlement agreements happen, where instead of past 250,000, you pass 25,000 or whatever it might be. That only gets lowered if you sign a non-disclosure and non-disparagement agreement. That means you cannot talk about this at all, and for the rest of your life, you're not allowed to say a bad word about the company suing you. Uh, that's crazy, but that's how it works. That's what you're saving $200,000 for, to not say bad words about it. Uh, I get personally upset with people like Aperion or whatever their name is making the KOTOR remake, or they were. I don't even know if they still are. Uh, I think those people are dangerous and, and, to be blunt about it, just not good people. Because on their website, it says something like, is this legal? Yes. And then two pages of absolute bullshit, just complete wrong misinformation that other people that are non-lawyers will read and say, oh, cool, this is legal. Here's why they're allowed to do it. Here's why they're able to do it. I'm going to go do it myself. And whoops, my life's ruined. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, those those people remaking KOTOR, they're going to get theirs. Most of the time that the cease and desist and the lawsuits don't come until you actually release something. And I apologize, there's construction going on outside of my office. Oh, I'm in I don't New York City. It's, been, it's happening since I hit record, too, on mine, yeah, so perfect. hopefully won't pick it up. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, cool. So, they, But, yeah, it's, it's a matter of uh, they get insanely uh, 
pompous about the fact I've been doing this for four years and I've got not gotten a takedown. Okay, release your game. Watch what happens on day one. They're not going to wait four hours after it. The second you release it, they're going to come after you because now there's actual damages that they can prove. Doesn't matter if your game's free. Doesn't matter if your game's a million dollars. You're going to be homeless. Yeah, that's um, you know, it's kind of a scary thought, especially a lot of these. Uh, there was one team that redid uh, a. a I don't want to get too specific now in case yeah. Nintendo's listening, but they basically took a Japan-only experience that happened in, I think, 96 or 97, and now they made it so people could experience it either on emulators or on home carts, and they just uh, put up the patches, and it's kind of hard to find, too, so it's like, you know, it's, um, it, by no means are they making one cent off of it, and it's it's, I mean, in my opinion, such an unbelievably important piece of history that, that I didn't even really know existed until they did this. So, you know, and so far, uh, I know all the team members and no one, nobody said anything to them about so, it. So yet. here's the thing, though. That is a good sob story and that is a good truth and that is a good, I want that to exist too. But now be on in Nintendo's shoes where they let that exist and now every idiot on Twitter says, well, if this game can do it, I can do it with this game. And then that that mentality and that rationalization goes all the way up to Mario. Legally, Nintendo has to protect their IP. Mm-hmm. And just common sense-wise, they have to. So, again, not to pick on Nintendo. They all do it. I, don't, I really don't understand why Nintendo gets the bad rap, other than the fact that maybe Nintendo uh, has more popular IP that gets stolen more. That's that's the other thing. That could uh, be it, but historically, Nintendo's always kind of been the uh, you know the big closed off company, and Sega did embrace a lot of their hackers. They hired Christian Whitehead. Who, that's the example I keep hearing. Name another. <laughs> uh, there was one more. Okay, they fine. With the uh, Wonder Boy and Monster World team, I think they uh, they openly embraced those guys. I think I might be getting that wrong, but there was more than one. So it's possible, but let's let's be totally – and I, I'm not anti-Sega and pro-Nintendo. Nintendo messes with my clients more than anyone, but it's a, because of what I'm about to say. Name five Sega properties that are going to be ripped off and redone and then name five Nintendo ones. You could name five million Nintendo ones before <laughs> you get to your tenth Sega one. Yeah. That's why Nintendo has to do this more. Legally, they have to police their IP. The guy – I mean really, what Sega titles are you going to remake that are going to be so good? I mean, how many Sonic fan games do we need? Mm-hmm. Uh, you take Nintendo, though. You have Pokemon. You have Mario. You have literally an endless list of great sought-after IP that people continually try to remake and redo. And that's why Nintendo has a, a, a basically a policy of we're not going to talk to you. We're going to sue you. Sega has that same policy unless it gets super popular on Twitter or Reddit. And then Sega gets to say, hey, we're relevant again. Maybe someone will buy us. Maybe we'll finally be allowed to exist. Uh, there, it's all marketing. If you think that Sega is just, if you think you can go back in time to the the height of the Genesis and use today's technology, do you really think Sega would be hiring all those hackers and letting people do stuff? Not a chance, because they were still on top of the world then. Mm-hmm. Now they're nowhere near it. They're not even on our world anymore. So they're like, thank God we're relevant. Please remake our stuff. Let's make this exciting again. Mm-hmm. Nintendo, they're fine. They don't need your your uh, remake of of Metroid. They just don't. And as much as I want to see it too, that it's, it, there's no legal argument for it. Gotcha. 
So, um, is there a statute of limitations for uh, for games then? So, if something, if there's a game from 1975 that no one's touched before, but it hasn't been, you know, the original content owner hasn't released it to the public, is there some kind of statute of limitations where we? Yeah, but it's, it? you're not gonna like it. Uh, it's 70 years after the author dies. Gotcha. So, whoever made that game when they die, 70 years past that. And then if the game is actually owned by a company or something like that, we'll ne- you know, our grandkids won't have the right to do it. It's just going to be there forever. And then even worse than that, trademarks, which protect the title. So if you want to call your game Metroid anything, Metroid's a trademark for the Nintendo company. Mm-hmm. And that's perpetual. So that's forever. forever. And as long as it's in commerce in any capacity, it's forever. You can claim a trademark's abandoned after three years, but I, you're, you're not it, – it's – not a fight that I'd want to be on. Uh, the best defense you have is the – actually, I don't even want to get into that because it's such an exception to an exception that mm. I don't want anyone listening to this to try to rely on it. Uh, I would rather to, to cure the untruths out there that it mm. doesn't matter if your game's free. It doesn't matter if you own the original and there is no way to distribute ROMs or mods or remakes that is legal. There's just not unless you get a license and licenses are not impossible to get. If you have a really good idea or you have a really good remake for a dead IP, call the company and see if you can do it. Sometimes they'll work with you. Mm-hmm. Even Nintendo. <laughs> so um, what about the hardware then? Because you see all these Nest clones popping up. Uh, isn't there a statute of limitations on the, the hardware and that's why people do have the clones? To be perfectly honest with you, I am not a patent attorney and I talked to our patent attorney about this exact fact. Mm-hmm. And uh, my... I felt like how I talked to everyone about trademarks. Like I, I, my eyes glossed over. I couldn't really follow it. It's such a, uh, such a high level conversation about the actual science behind the things and what is protectable under a patent and what is not. The short answer is yes, there is a 20 year protection on patents, which we are passing with most hardware now, Mm -hmm. uh, from the original generation anyway. Uh, so yeah, the original NES is arguably not under patent anymore, but again, I'm not a patent attorney, so I don't want to black and white that. Right. Cause well, I mean the very fact that you could buy Nest clones and in America on Amazon and Nintendo's not swooping in and suing them probably means that's true then <laughs> the 20 year patent thing on that. Um, to a, to a degree. Yeah. And then the other thing you have to keep in mind though is trade dress. So Nintendo still owns the, the trademark or the trade dress to what an NES looks like. So you can do a clone, it can't be it can't be the exact same uh, look and feel of it. Right, right. That, that yeah, that makes perfect sense as well. So um so then would ROM carts be illegal? The devices that allow you to dump all these ROMs on older hardware. So if you But have... are, are they sold with ROMs on them? No. Then probably not. I mean it you know a, a tobacco pipe's not illegal until you put weed in it. Right, uh, right. You know, that's that's the example I would use. <laughs> yeah, somebody. I, I honestly don't know if they were a game developer that was really offended, or if they were just a troll trying to light me up. But somebody was just nonstop posting on my review of one product and basically said that, you know, um, just by reviewing something that that allows you to have <laughs> no. these ROMs on it. I I actually saw that guy's an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> you're, so, you're allowed to review whatever you want you can go review weed if you want yeah exactly and you know and the fact don't that, do that though don't rely on that as legal advice no. disclaimer, disclaimer. <laughs> don't start your, your, your youtube marijuana channel and call me right unless you're in, in california or, or yeah, right. one of those places now 
But I mean, the example I gave is, I just thought it was ridiculous. It's like, it's like a knife set, right? Like if I say this is a great knife set, cut my steak really well with it, and somebody goes and buys that knife and stabs himself in the leg. <laughs> you know, That's exactly I, right. I can't, right. So, all right. And, you know, to that effect, I, I tell everybody that with, well, Nintendo's not suing this guy, so it means I can do it. No, OJ got away with murder. It doesn't mean you can start killing people. Right. You know, it's just a matter of know where the dangers are. And, and hopefully, you know, we, we got through those. So, um, do you know anything about um, where the legalities of some of these hardware mods stand? So, of course, we're still playing in the in the ballpark of consoles that are older than twenty years old, and th- uh, you know, not having any of their IP involved. Mostly things like you take a console apart, you know, you lift some pins, you solder in this chip. Uh, not mod chips; it's for like video and audio and, and enhancing the thing. Because I used to work for a company that uh, that designed and manufactured computers. And um, one of the one of the guys there who had been doing electronics for a million years basically told me that like anything that you sell, you have to have um, the consumer. You know, uh, we used to get CE regulations, but they're you know all the different ones. And if you don't, um, you could be uh, get you know you could be liable for all these things. And I've had other people say no, that's completely not true. You could sell anything and get sued, so just make sure you have an LLC set up just in case. But that's what I was just gonna say. So so. The worst answer, but the most true answer to this stuff and to all of these things Mm -hmm. is they don't need to be right to sue you. They don't need the law on their side to sue you. And it'll cost you 50 grand to get sued. It'll cost you 100 grand if if you don't win immediately. Uh, So the the real answer is kind of don't poke the bear where you don't need to. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wouldn't make it a business of modding Xboxes. But Maito Lashani, our associate, wrote a really great piece on jailbreaking iPhones, which is even though that's a software change, the arguments are very much still the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would, without it, it, that is such a nuanced issue that the short answer is it's usually not legal in most jurisdictions. It's becoming more legal. It's mm-hmm. something that our legislators are actually starting to understand what it means and figuring out good policy behind it, as opposed to what they do with everything else on the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's that's our biggest challenge is we're using laws written for newspapers to police the video game industry. Right. Really difficult. Uh, but they're really starting to look at this more. And, and I, I recommend you Google the article by my associate, Maida Lashani, mm-hmm. or tweet at me and I'll link it to you. It's uh, happy to share it. it. It's it's a long read. It's not, you know, the most exciting thing in the world to read about the the manufacturing and tech behind something and what you're allowed to change. But if you're interested in it, which I think a lot of your listeners are, it's super interesting. And it's also a really good look at all the legislation and policy going on that that really is not it's so new that we don't know the answer yet gotcha so um when it comes to, uh, did you hear about i think it was in canada where uh somebody just got uh sued and i think they went to they might have gone to jail for selling mod chips for um i don't i forgot which system it was but it, it was basically a mod chip seller um, and it was, I think they originally started with the PS2 stuff and they got in, uh, you know, a lot of trouble for that. And that, you know, that there always is the argument of, well, what if I want to mod it to play imports that I've bought? What if I want to mod it to play a homebrew game that I wrote? You know, and obviously if somebody's making a ton of money on it, they're probably selling the mod chips to people who are copying games. For sure. And, and that's where it, that's what has to be looked at with the policy arguments, because the person making it to make homebrew games is 0.01% of the people buying mod chips out there. Uh, and that sucks, but that's the truth of every law we have on the books. You can't you know, go over 30 miles an hour in a town because 
a lot of people who will will drive carelessly, even though there's some drivers out there who drive more safely at 40 miles an hour, whatever it might be. That's a dumb analogy. But the, the, the such a small group that's doing the right thing with it is unfortunately having their stuff ruined by the idiots mass selling it over eBay or whatever they're doing. And that's what this I don't even know this case, but I would bet that's what this guy was doing. Uh, that's not going to change. We're not going to see even with these policy t changes I'm talking about that that Mita wrote about. Uh, we're not going to see these things change because it's it it shouldn't change. I mean, there there's um, it, at least in the eyes of the legislators who are trying to protect the corporations who made this stuff. You you can't go mod this hardware or you can't sell kind of a derivative work of the hardware, even though that's not the, the correct legalese and give it to people. Uh, the th that is changing. Like I said, there's policy arguments being made right now about what you can and can't mod and what you can and can't change on things. But I don't think you're ever going to be allowed to set up a uh, Nintendo mod store. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, now, uh, just recently, I guess there was um, the right to repair, I think it's called. Yep. So I guess the big companies are not sending out parts. Um, this is something that was handled in the auto industry a long time ago, right? Where now the auto companies are forced to uh, supply replacement parts for X amount of years after a car is manufactured for this exact reason, to combat this stuff. Uh, is this something that, you know, everything's changing so much that there's no chance of that being won, or is that... Well, that's the trick, right? So we're, we've never seen technology advance this quickly. Uh, the, the differences in a car from 20 years ago versus the difference between your Super Nintendo and a PlayStation 4 are otherworldly. I mean, it's, it's, we're, we're, we've never seen anything like this to be perfectly frank about it. And that's going to require a rewrite on a lot of policy arguments and a lot of laws we have, uh, the right to repair thing. Again, I, I know your viewership is super behind it and I, and I love that. I'm actually with you guys. I, I like to collect a lot of random stuff and part of it is older consoles and games. I'm really into that. Uh, but the truth is most people are not like us. Uh, you know, there is not a yammering for people to be able to self-repair their NES out there. And instead, what you're going to see is the patent protection fall away and NES has become mass marketed and, and sold by third parties. And you can kind of just go buy one cheaply, hopefully. And that's going to be the solution rather than Sony having to send you parts to a PlayStation. Gotcha. At least that's a guess, too, because we're not there yet. But that's the guess. You know, because because parts... In uh, consoles and everything changed so quickly, and because in the electronics industry you buy things in you know thousand, hundred thousand, you know a million if you're Sony and Nintendo, I wouldn't expect that you'd still be allowed to buy parts for, or or that we would force them to still send parts for PlayStation One and PlayStation Two. But the thing that does kind of uh, you know, and I, I understand both sides of it, but if you buy a brand new PS4 and the drive dies. Um, you know, it's not that hard to pop it out and replace it. it you oh, you mean for the current for current consoles. generation? Oh, yeah. I misunderstood you. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think that will be. Uh, I, I can't tell you the exact law on that right now, but I think that's something that we're certainly going in that direction, where these companies can't keep selling you an iPhone with a battery that's made to die in six months. Right. Uh, you know, stuff like that. We're gonna we're gonna see more consumer protection on that, depending on. Again, not to get political, even though I already did, but depending on which party controls Congress and the House. I mean, that's that's quite literally where these laws come from. And if we have Republicans in there, we're not going to see any protections for it. We're going to see us have less options to to self-regulate or self-repair things. And if you see Democrats in there, uh, you're going to see a lot more of it. 
And I think the big misconception, too, politically is is uh, the libertarians saying that they're going to help police this stuff or help make self-repair more more out there. And that's that's just completely not true based on policy we've seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, vote for socialism over that, <laughs> which is fine. I mean, put Bernie in there and we'll all be able to fix our own stuff. <laughs> the uh, the one thing that I did, I did want to at least mention to the people watching, though, is there are certain scenarios where you really shouldn't be messing with any of that. You know, we had had a couple of, and this probably doesn't apply to video games, but maybe it does, but we had a couple of medical-grade computers where if you didn't put them back together in the right order with the right stuff, it would actually emit, you know, a point oh to the millionth power more electromagnetic radiation than it would have, which has probably, without exaggerating, a one in a hundred million chance of doing any harm to anything, but there's more than 100 people in the world so right. you know so there there are scenarios like that where people should definitely not be doing their own i just to clarify i'm talking about very basic stuff here you know as long as you have a screwdriver and one of those plastic poppers you could you could do it so that, right. i do understand the safety reasons and things like that but for sure and that not not all companies are you know maniacal evil geniuses sometimes they really are just Please don't kill yourself. Let us fix this for you. But I, I agree with you. Like replacing the screen on an iPhone takes four cents and uh, four seconds and twelve cents, and uh, you know it'll be a month long process if you mail it in to get repaired that way. Right. <laughs> yeah, and the fact that a lot of these places don't repair anything anymore. Like if you have a, if you I just ran into this. If you drop your Microsoft Surface and crack the screen, there is no place to get that officially from Microsoft to get that repaired. Your right. only option is to is to. Um, to trade it in and they'll give you a refurb yeah so, and there's uh, people get i mean people lose their shit about that because if they have something that they kept in perfect condition how do they know where that refurb has been how do they know that's not a beat up thing that you know the, yeah maybe it's got a shiny new case on it or something so i, I do completely agree. understand that i think anybody that's ever dropped their phone has been through that before as well right so no absolutely um so somebody emailed me a question the other day and i at first, I kind of laughed it off, but then I started to wonder, you know, how much merit it actually had. But um, they said they wanted to start an Instagram account, um, basically just about video games in general and the new things that are out. And they said they're going to be taking a lot of pictures of, like, Amiibos and Nintendo, basically Nintendo IP. Um, and they said, is that legal? And my opinion is, if uh, well, my my perception on this was if something's in public... Of course you could take a picture and stick it on Instagram. But is that wrong? <laughs> is that wrong is, is a way to question because, again, you have to look at the total picture. So what are they doing? And this – Jesus Christ, the crane just went <laughs> crazy there. Uh, the, the whole picture is what are they doing with that picture? What's it linking to? What's it leading to? Is this to help people do self-repair or is this to get them to their repair store and sell them a part or whatever it might be? Uh, the whole picture does matter here. So the guy selling mod chips, it, that, we're not arguing is it okay to sell a mod chip to someone or is it okay to have a mod chip. We're arguing that guy's specific case. And that's the most dangerous part of the internet right now is that people take a specific case as if it's case law for everyone and everything having to do with that one subject matter. That's the opposite of how the law works. The law looks at everything very specifically. We're, we're as lawyers not even allowed to give out specific answers in a public forum because they don't want the public thinking that the answer to a specific fact pattern has anything to do with something slightly different. So even just, I would have to see that picture before I could give you an answer. It's that silly. 
but that's where we're at. That is pretty crazy. I think yeah. at least in the context of what this person had asked, I mean, I, I get the impression he's going to be walking around and, hey, look what I found at a game store. Oh, hey, look what's up at Walmart. So it's not not taking that's anything apart. Or anything. I mean, that's public. You're in public. You're allowed right. to take that, That's fine with the disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. Nothing's ever fine and we're all going to get sued into death. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somebody said something to me years ago, a lawyer friend of mine, that um, remember that... Um, Anybody could sue anybody for any reason at all. The only question is if it's gonna if they're gonna go anywhere with it. So if somebody really wanted to freak out and you know they could say, well, you know, I think that might be threatening my company's IP, whatever else. You you might actually end up in court for something if it's you know if somebody felt strongly enough about it. That's the beauty. I mean, it just it goes back to you don't have to be right to sue someone. You just have to be pissed off. Yeah, there you go. Um, so for people that run into any of these things. Um, what happens if you don't have any money? Do you, can you just show up at court by yourself and, and cross your fingers? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> cross them really hard. Uh, it's a really, really sad thing, but the truth is the justice system is not for people without money. Uh, if it's criminal and you're actually looking at jail time, they'll give you a lawyer. Mm-hmm. If it's civil and you're going to have an almost work situation like losing your house or your bank account or your family or your job or whatever, you don't get a free lawyer. And you have to figure that out. And, uh, uh, you know, the chance of it going to court, impossible. I think reality is uh, most of the companies suing you are going to look at it and say, let's figure out a settlement that makes sense for this guy's specific situation. Let's hurt him so he doesn't do it again, but let's not kill him. And uh, that's the that's the usual norm. And what you can do is you can reach out to us. I mean, if if if. Big evil corporations coming after you. We've we've made a reputation and a career off helping them for free. Uh, it's I know not everybody has money. I have a green eight dollar shirt on. You know we don't. <laughs> I drive a Kia. We're not here for the money. We're here because despite all my warnings and my sternness on this stuff, we we really do pride ourselves on repping and helping the little guy. Uh, my partner is a, is the best litigator in the world, and and we're here to help you when things go awry. Uh, if you make mario 2 the marioing we're not going to help you with <laughs> nintendo but if you do something that you that really you know was not wrong uh yeah message us we'll help you we really will cool that's uh that's really nice of you guys and it's it's good to know that you know there's at least people out there giving information um i guess one last question i have is that um are do they still do like uh i don't know what the i, I was going to say group suing but i uh it was 12 years ago so i'm way past the statute of limitations so i got something in the mail that says yeah class actions yeah (laughs) i bought something that could possibly be used for um uh, decoding direct tv channels it could also (laughs) actually be used for pc engine games a lot of other things um and you know of of course i was experimenting with that i was a nerd and i was like 19 you know why wouldn't i want to mess with everything Right. Um, and the lawyer or the the letter I got said that you know we bought the company that sold these things, which means we now own their own all of their books. So we have proof that you bought it. Pay us thirty five hundred dollars right now, and it'll go away forever. Or uh, you say no, and we'll sue you for the full hundred thousand dollars and take it to court. So I brought it to my lawyer, who basically was like, "Fuck off." <laughs> yeah. Wrote the note, said, "You know, don't ever contact my client again." There's no proof that he even received it, let alone you know anything else. That's the right answer. And what he what he actually said was that those those companies will do that, and they won't go any farther than that letter until they reach a point. So if 
if everybody sticks up the middle finger and walks away, then they're done. But if enough people pay that 3500 that goes into a bank account that says, hey, now we have a budget to sue all the worst offenders. And sometimes that budget's 10, sometimes that budget is for 1,000 people. There's a website that I can't believe I forget the name of right now, but it, it's, uh, it's, it was doing that with images, stock photos on websites. So they would send you a, a letter saying, pay us $6,000 because you use this picture that, that we own. Uh, they didn't own the pictures or they would very loosely be affiliated with the photographer or whatever it might be. It was uh, it was a scam and they would never actually sue you. They just said, pay us six grand and we won't sue you. Or you could ignore this and we also won't sue you. Uh, but enough people paid and some of the, the people started talking to real attorneys and those attorneys said, holy hell, this is crazy, as I would have said if I got that letter from your guy. And uh, they got countersued. And yeah, I mean, that's that's ridiculous. I mean, if, if, if what you're saying is how it happened, that's ridiculous. I would have, that's when we, we get Reddit and Twitter to light that company on fire. Uh, because that's, what's nice nowadays. We have the internet and social justice and not social justice warriors, but we can be social justice <laughs> mages. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, really? I mean, it's that companies don't like the bad PR. They don't like their top SEO to be this company sucks. Look at the scam. So if, if enough people are getting screwed over and it's, it's screwed over, as traditionally they would have gotten away with it 30 years ago, they can't anymore. So that's why that I don't run into that as often as I did in yes. well, like 2001 or something versus for now. Sure. It's because there's such a, a huge platform for people to communicate Cause, with each other. Because now when you get that letter, the first thing you do is you Google that letter and you see how many other people are worried and freaked out about it and it all of a sudden turns into a thing. They don't want that. Interesting. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know you're a busy guy, and I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. No, it's my pleasure. I, 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 For everybody watching, I've had to reschedule three times now, and I'm the hugest jerk in the world. So I appreciate you accommodating my schedule. Not a problem <laughs> at all. Um, is there any last things, that you, any last piece of information, something that I didn't ask that you wanted to get out to everybody who's listening? Yeah, if you're doing something, talk to a lawyer. If you're starting a business, talk to a lawyer. It is free to talk to most lawyers. They will give you a free consultation. And even after that, if you have, uh, if you're starting a business – there's a lawyer in America you can afford. There are ones that will do it for very cheap or help you for whatever. Uh, and there's ones that are very expensive for when you start making a ton of money and you want kind of that next tier protection. Uh, but very much just have a lawyer and an accountant and know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, I actually, um, I, I, I probably should have mentioned this first, but when you posted that thing on Reddit that kind of just went through little steps to go to, and I'll link yeah. all this in the description, by the way, for anybody listening, but Appreciate you posted your, your basic pricing structure, which of course is going to be different for everybody else, but you gave, yeah. you know, and what the prices you were charging were, were absolutely fair. And the things that I learned, like with the, I thought I could, you know, all this stuff sounded so simple to me when I was setting up the a business for the band and everything, the trademark. And next thing you know, I realized like $3,000 later, if I had just gone to a lawyer first, it would have been about 1200 Right. So it's just like, you know, just it, unless you're a lawyer, just go to a lawyer. And there are definitely people like you out there that aren't looking to buy a new boat on your small business, you know? I mean, if you want to send me a boat, fine, but no, no, you're right though. I mean, and I'm not the only one. We're not trying to say that. I mean, would I love everybody watching this to use us? Of course, but there's, a, there's attorneys everywhere that can help you. Uh, but, but yeah, we, we, we're very public about what we charge and, and what we think things are worth. And yes, it's not $4 for a trademark, but it's a lot less than the 3,500 that a big law firm is going to charge. And we do it just as good, if not better. <laughs> yep. And those hidden little things, man. I did my trademark like four times, and every time I turned around, they said, no problem. And then a month later, I'd get a letter saying, nope, it's wrong. It's $300 to change it. Like, oh, yeah. come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. And that's what, you know, we, that's what's nice about 
using a law firm, you know, you pay a little more up front, but you get everything done the right way and you don't have to redo it. Yep. Cool. Well, um, thank you again for your time and all of the information. Um, if you just want to send me that one link to the thing your partner did, I'll have everything in the description for everybody to read. Um, and I, I really appreciate it. And if you ever want, uh, if you ever want your consoles modded, <laughs> deal. We'll do it under I'll the take table, you up on so that. nobody, uh, you know, we won't be legally coming back to you. <laughs> Sounds good. And thanks for having me again. It's been a pleasure. No problem. Take care. Have a good one. Bye.